Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So remember back in December when we talked about how restaurants in France have been weathering COVID and all these lockdowns? Yeah, and they're still closed, aren't they? January the 20th had been floated as a date that restaurants could reopen, but mm -hmm. that came and went, didn't it? Yep, yep, yep. Now they're even talking about April as reopening. I mean, maybe even later. Mm -hmm. um, but as we said in that show, the, the Michelin Guide went ahead and gave out their yearly ratings and stars anyway, mm -hmm. even though restaurants in 2020 were only open about half of the months of the year. Yeah, the organizers said that they wanted to do this. They wanted to put restaurants back in people's minds. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly did that. Um, and notably, the first ever Michelin star awarded to a vegan restaurant. Vegan, yeah. yeah. This is not a very French phenomenon, is it? There's mm -hmm. no foie gras in a vegan restaurant. There's no fromage, no cheese. Yeah, in a gastronomic restaurant, um, no animal products whatsoever even. No no eggs, no dairy. Mm. Um, the restaurant in question is ONA, O-N-A. It's near Bordeaux. And the name is the acronym for Origin Non Animal, or Non-Animal Origin. Um, there's been an explosion of kind of informal vegan restaurants in Paris, at least in the last few years, um, often, though, being catering to, to visitors and tourists. And veganism is growing to some extent, but it's still very much seen as marginal in France. Claire Vallée, um, she runs and, and owns the restaurant that won the star, is a self-trained chef. She discovered vegetable-based cooking abroad in Thailand. When she came back to France, um, she had trouble cooking in traditional kitchens. She'd already become vegan herself. So in 2016, she decided to open up her own place. Our colleague Isabelle Martinetti called her up, and Vallée said her focus is on local ingredients and creativity. Alors, nos clients sont pas du tout vegan, pas, enfin, pas du tout. Our clients are not vegan, she says here. Maybe 5% of our clients are. The others come out of curiosity. They've heard about it on social media or through word of mouth, and they like gastronomic cooking. My cooking is creative and passionate, she says, full of life and color and energy. That's why we are where we are today. But getting a star during a pandemic when your restaurant is closed, it must be a bit of a letdown. <laughs> yeah, you'd think so. Though it turns out she's actually not too upset about it. We'd prefer to be open, she says, but at the same time, being closed allows us to recover a bit from all this, prepare the future, because we were already full. And if we had to manage the new star on top of all that, on top of everything else, it would be more complicated. Dans un restaurant vide Où les mouches se perdent J'aime entendre l'écho Des phrases refroidies so restaurants remain closed, and now we're all under a 6 p.m. curfew, so home by 6 p.m. every day. Mm. Alison, how are you finding it? Oh, it's really challenging, Sarah. Mm. I can't say I like it. You know, even <laughs> even if we can stay out later because of our work, the shops are shut. Where on yeah. earth are you meant to do your grocery shopping after yeah, 6 yeah, p.m.? Yeah, I, mean, I guess. Seriously, I guess the weekends, I guess, it'll mm, be super yeah. crowded. Um, and also the winter sales just kicked off. Retailers are really unhappy. They say they do as much as a third of their business between 6 and 8 p.m. after work. Indeed. Some people are saying the curfew is, in fact, more constraining than lockdown was. Because at least during lockdown, you could go out and shop or take exercise with the certificate, of course, but after 6 p.m. 
Yeah, yeah. So, but actually, that might be the point. I mean, the government had evoked trying to curb what they call the apéro effect, right? Mm-hmm. People getting together for a drink after work or or to shop, um, and, and spreading the virus. So maybe that's the point. Yeah, the curfews and lockdowns are taking a toll,、uh, notably on university students in France who are forced to study at home, sometimes in these tiny student flats. Studies have shown that up to a third of them are suffering from mental health issues. The government has recognised this finally to some extent, and it's now allowing universities to welcome small groups of first-year students on site. Yeah, small groups, but these measures of distancing and keeping our masks and staying away in lockdowns will be around for a while. Health authorities say that the virus really does spread more quickly indoors when masks are removed,、um, and we'll have to do this probably until everyone's vaccinated. Even though the vaccination campaign is now underway in、mm. France. Mieux encore que dans la chambre, j't'aime dans la cuisine. Rien n'est plus beau que les mains d'une femme dans la farine. Oh, c'est pas de la tarte, la pâtisserie, non, c'est pas du tout cuit. Sarah, quick question: How many baguettes are eaten in France each second? Each second. Ooh, wow. Well, baguettes in France. I mean, it must be quite a lot. Yeah, three hundred and twenty every second. Can you believe that? That's a total of six billion a year. Now, of course, a lot of them are made in factories, but the artisan ones we know are the best.、Um, but there's an increasing shortage of people here in France to make them. There are reportedly、oh. some five thousand job vacancies in France's thirty thousand or so boulangeries or bakeries. That's a lot of people. Yeah,、um, and that. That's partly because France isn't training as many apprentices as it needs, or at least the ones that it's training are not staying in the industry. Huh? So they don't want to stick around and continue to make bread. That's interesting. Yeah, not enough of them anyway. There clearly is a problem, and this was highlighted by a baker in Besançon in southeast France recently. He made headline news when he went on a hunger strike to try and hang、mm. on to his Guinean apprentice who was going to be deported because he turned the age of eighteen. So the baker is called Stéphane Ravaclet, and he went on hunger strike for around ten days. He told French media at the time that it was partly because up to Seventy percent of young apprentices weren't staying in the trade, and that was partly because their employers weren't treating them very well. So、mm. for him, it made sense to give a motivated young migrant like his Guinean apprentice a good chance to stay and work here in France. So, okay, a hunger strike in a bakery. How did that turn out? Well, a happy end, in fact. Thanks to all the media coverage, Lai Fouditraoré, who is now 18, will be given French residency.、Mm. Lai spoke to our colleague Sylvie Coffey as he was looking forward to getting back to work on Tuesday. Au début, c'était pas facile de se réveiller la nuit, venir au travail, mais. In the beginning, it wasn't easy getting up in the middle of the night. He said, "But I've ended up loving this job. I've put everything into it. I want to work. I want to become someone honourable." He said, "I've had that in my head since I was a child. So I've got to work hard." So bakeries have labour shortages, and there's an issue of youth unemployment in France. But young people don't want to do those jobs.、Mm-hmm. I guess the hours are rough. Is that it? 
It's a mix of reasons, Sarah. Of course, yeah, the hours are difficult. You have to get an early morning start most of the time. There's lots of weekend work. It's not as romantic as you think. It's physically very, very demanding. You're on your feet all day. And of mm. course, sometimes in the summer, those kitchens can get steaming hot. So I talked about some of these issues with the baker patissier Nicolas Roquet. He has a bit of a vision going on because he's committed to training apprentices with a view to keeping them on as employees if they're good enough. He's had eight apprentices over the last two years. Two of them are still with him and two others are now employed. One is from Afghanistan and the other from Mali. And together they make a great team. Bonjour. Nicolas Roquet introduces part of his team here in the kitchens at Boulangerie Magali in Paris. Here's Renaud, the head baker. Nasir, who used to be an apprentice, he's now a pastry chef, so he does all the croissants and pain au chocolat. He's from Afghanistan. Over here we have Momo. He was an apprentice, now he takes care of baking all the bread from 1 to 8 p.m. Momo is a tall, strong 22-year-old from Mali. He's making long bread buns known as viennoises. He cuts bread dough into pieces, tosses them into a machine, which then transforms them into the required sausage shapes. He then lays them out onto trays. Momo was already working as an apprentice when Roquet took over this bakery two years ago. He kept him on and then hired him full-time in September last year. <laughs> they have a good relationship. We say to the apprentices, in our bakery, there's no boss, no apprentice, no shop assistant. We're all the same. We respect each other, the product, and the client. If we do that, there will be no problems. There will be the other upset, of course, but everything can be sorted out if you talk about it. No hierarchy, but Momo has nicknamed Renault the big boss because he helped him a lot when they first met back in 2017. Momo's French was halting at the time. I helped him get his diploma, says Renault, because he didn't pass it the first time. There's a lot of technical vocabulary around the bakery business, so I helped him get through the written and technical part. Once the bread is finished, Momo moves over to putting the galette des rois, or king's cake, into the ovens. It's a big part of the bakery business in France for the month of January. Momo is reluctant to take time out from his work to have a chat. I've learned so much, not just about the job, I've learned how to live with other people, some of them from different countries, he says. It's not easy, but I'm really lucky to have a great team behind me. They've taught me the job, but also about life, about humanity. People like Momo and Nasir have made remarkable efforts to learn the language. They've worked hard to get ahead. 
Not all apprentices may be as hardworking as Momo and Nasir. Roque admits that sometimes it doesn't work out. He recently let one apprentice go. It was clear the kid's mother thought the chances of finding work were good, but the youngster wasn't interested in becoming a baker at all. But employers are also to blame. Some of them are not prepared to put in the time. Some of my fellow bakers say, oh, I don't want any more apprentices because they always cause problems. But you mustn't generalize. It doesn't always work out, and sometimes it's the apprentice's fault. But sometimes it's ours because we don't take the time to help them. If that's the case, then we mustn't complain that we can't find the staff. If we don't train them up, we can't expect to fill the posts. Another reason apprentices aren't brought on is that some employers are attracted by cheap labor. For the first year, apprentices spend half their time in the bakery and half in school. They earn roughly 380 euros a month, but it's paid by the state, not the employer. A lot of employers think only about the subsidies they'll get when hiring an apprentice. They say, hey, we've got an extra pair of hands for free. But even if they're in school one week out of two, you mustn't take them on just because they're cheap. For me, that's doomed to failure. These people are the future top pastry chefs and bakers, company directors and teachers, so we have to train. If you train someone just to get the subsidy, you're making a mistake. I always tell them when they start out, you have a great job. If you work hard, use your head and your hands, you can travel anywhere. French bakers and pastry chefs are in demand all over the world. Momo has only one objective, to run his own business here or maybe back home in Mali. My dream is to have my own company one day, he says, to succeed just like everyone else. So he's talking about success there. Um, of course, it does involve a lot of hard work. Yeah, the hours can be rough and the pay isn't great. When you start out, you're on the minimum wage, which is 1,554 euros a month gross in France. Uh, that said, after a few years' experience, you can start to earn a decent living. And self-employed artisan bakers can earn up to 4,000 euros a month. Which is quite good in France. Yeah, and it's a hugely rewarding job, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. if you made good bread, it's true. You become a cornerstone of people's lives here. Just think of how many baguettes are sold each second. Um, interesting that it increasingly depends on immigrants to happen. Oh, il faut que je vous explique. Je me suis cassé la jambe au sport d'hiver en faisant du ski. Mais oui. Et pourtant, je suis un vieux sportif et le ski, ça me connaît. Je faisais déjà les championnats en 98. Nous n'avions pas les mêmes méthodes. En espace, je suis resté au chasse-neige. Tandis que maintenant, ils vous font faire des trucs impossibles, des cristianias, des slaloms. Ah, les sports d'hiver, ou winter sports. Um, Alison, do you ski? Ski? 
Not only do I not ski, Sarah, my <laughs> one and only attempt ended in tears when I was about the age of 30 and I had to be ushered down the slopes by a monitor. Ooh, I was humiliated. Ouch, that, <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound good. But you may be one of the few people in France to not ski. It's a mm. huge industry here. Some would say that we have a February school break just to keep the ski resorts in business, though yeah. this year things are not looking good because they are going to be closed because of COVID. Um, but in normal times, it's huge. Mm. It started, you might say, 97 years ago this week, January 25th, 1924, when Chamonix in the French Alps hosted the first ever Winter Olympic Games. And the Olympic Games started in 1896, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but with summer sports, though uh, the organizers really wanted figure skating in there. Um, and figure skating showed up in London in 1908, Antwerp in 1920. But not all the host cities, of course, had the infrastructure for that, and especially not for skiing. Uh, France pushed for the 1924 Games to be hosted in Paris, and the organizers suggested a parallel winter event in the mountains. The Scandinavian countries at the International Olympic Committee pushed back because they had already started their own winter sport competition, the Nordic Games. They agreed to take part in the Chamonix competition if it wasn't called the Olympics. So it was called the International Winter Sports Week. Mm, not quite as catchy, I have to say. <laughs> no, not at all. And so how did they choose the town of Chamonix? Because um, today, attributing the Olympics really is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. There were many cities in the Alps that wanted to host it. Chamonix was eventually chosen because it had enough space to house everyone coming and decent snow. Like all Olympics, of course, there was some building to do, um, a bobsled path, an ice rink, a ski jump. In all, 258 athletes from 16 countries participated. There were 14 events in six sports. Of those 258 athletes, only 13 were women, and they were all competing in figure skating. Norway won the unofficial team competition, 17 medals. France won no gold medals, mm. three bronze, though. So was it considered a success? Well, yeah, on a sporting level, the IOC formally created the Winter Olympics the very next year, 1925. They retroactively made Chamonix the first one. Um, but um, financially, it was a disaster. The 1924 Games cost 3.5 million francs, which is 400,000 euros today. Not much in today's money, but quite mm. a lot at the time. So that much to build, but it only took in 120,000 in ticket sales. So there was a huge deficit. But all was not lost. Uh, Chamonix, it did put the city on the map. Um, the infrastructure gave the city a boost ahead of others as skiing was starting to become a much more popular sport. And today, Chamonix is one of France's biggest and best-known ski resorts. The Brits love it, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those Olympics really did give a boost to skiing. The International Ski Federation was founded during that first competition. The Winter Olympics didn't come back to France until 1968. That was in Grenoble and then 1992 in Albertville. And the next ones, next year, in fact, in 2022, are in Beijing. <laughs> well known for its mountains. <laughs> for its snow and its mountains, yeah. But of course, who knows what any of that will be like. You know, like last year's Summer Olympics, Tokyo were postponed to this year because of COVID. Paris is supposed to host the Summer Olympics in 2024. I mean, all that is up in the air. We'll have to see.
So we've been talking about COVID confinements. You know, we're all at home. We're doing lots of cooking, hanging out, and watching TV. Um, Allison, have you increased your consumption of TV series recently? Sorry to disappoint, but I'm not a big watcher of TV series. <laughs> but um, a lot of people around me have been recommending different series, left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah, and here in France, um, a lot of these are productions from the United States and the UK. So in English. Yeah. Bravo. You made it all the way to the belly of the beast. So here's a scene from Westworld. It's a sci-fi series, an American production from HBO. This is one of the main characters, Maeve Millet, who's played by the British actress Tandy Newton. You're not what I expected. Surprised you were so easily seduced, but then again, you are a man. Season three aired on the French channel Canal Plus last year, and it sounded like this. Because, of course, it's dubbed. Yeah, as are most TV series and movies here, unlike neighboring countries in Germany, for example, or in Northern Europe, where there is a lot more subtitling. Yeah, yeah. Dubbing is a huge industry in France. It involves actors, recording studios. The French voice of Maeve in Westworld is Annie Milon. She's been dubbing for 25 years. La mort n'est pas facile à apprivoiser pour nous. Parlez-en à votre ami. But of course, just as everyone wants more shows to watch because of COVID, production has been affected by it, too. Here in France, the dubbing industry took a hit. Westworld's third season was just starting to be aired in France in March of last year, just at the start of the first lockdown. So there were no voiceovers then? Well, the first two episodes were already done, but not the others. Um, this was the case for a lot of shows. Canal Plus decided to continue airing Westworld, but with subtitles only. Other channels decided to pull their non-French language programming, put it on hold till they could get the dub versions done. And of course, the entire industry suffered as productions shut down. I talked to Annie Milon about the experience, and then in general about what it's like to be a voiceover actor in France. When it was possible to work again, we finished dubbing uh, Westworld, we, we do all the thing very fast. There is an emergency situation. So during the lockdown, there was no work? No. There wasn't an option of, of recording at home or anything like that? No, no, no. Now we have to stay home like everybody. Uh, when we come back in studios, it was a, a very, very uh, busy time. So you're saying you had to catch up all kinds of work. Yes. But were you working just the same as you were before? I imagine this was then in May, during the deconfinement in May. The decision about to come back in studios, it was taken. If we are alone in front of the microphone with only engineers, and um, artistic direction. Because usually you're, you're recording in a group? Yes, absolutely. We can be three or four actresses and uh, actors. Like if there's a scene with multiple characters, you guys are all in the studio at the same time. Yeah, it's um, easier and we can play together. They must have been really weird then to be stuck in, you know, one person per booth. Do you have to imagine what uh, the other 
could say. It, it demands a lot of imagination. That's why it's so uh, exhausted. Because, I mean, how does it work, right? Like, you, you have the stuff written, right? Like, you have the script in front of you. You know what they're Not supposed exactly. to say. Not exactly. You have the screen, and just under the screen, you have what we called in France la boucle. It's between uh, 30 seconds to one minute of uh, dialogue. We read the first time just for us. We discovered the scene, and after that, uh, we can see a second time. When you are on a TV show, it's a very uh, a quick job. And you, after that, you have to play in French uh, with uh, the good timing, the same timing of your character on the screen. And one of the issues is that English often is much shorter, right, than French. And so you have to speak a lot faster. In French, we have uh, around 20% longer for the same sentence. Would you say that voiceover, the work you do as a voiceover, I mean, is it acting? No. When you do voiceover, you have to follow the person on the screen, but you don't have to cover him or her with feelings. You have to say just the same things that the person say in English. Before, a lot of people who don't act at all make a lot of um, voiceover. One voiceover artist usually follows the same actor, right? Uh, it was uh, true, but it is not the case of since um, 10 years. Uh, we can have three French voice for one uh, actress. Now there's much less of an identification, one voice, one actress. Unfortunately for me and others. <laughs> Why is that unfortunate? Because uh, some American actress or English actress that I love, I lost her, uh, you know, uh, like uh, Yada Picken Smith, for example. John Wick, excommunicado, is now in effect. I used to do a French voice uh, during 15 years. You shouldn't be here. Tu ne devrais pas être ici. Then uh, suddenly someone decides that uh, he wants to change. Uh, he can change. Uh, he's, uh, she's not mine. <laughs> so we, we can change. So I guess, I mean, obviously you lose some work, but you lose a sort of connection with this person. Um, and it's interesting, actually, that, that you say that there's a decision then to sort of break the relationship between the voice and the character. Yeah, but, but it's like that. And, uh, but I kept a lot of my uh, actress I found. Like Taraji P. Henson, I share <laughs> Alberi. Alberi. You've never believed in the one. I still don't. I believe in him. Je n'y crois toujours pas, mais je crois en lui. We are two on Alberi, so it's great. I love uh, the actress of um, Westworld. One thing I, I do notice is that you often seem to voice people who have the same skin color as you. Oh, yes, I know. Why is that? Why does it matter what, what you look I like? Because I think that it's just something very simple. It's a, it's a lazy way. You see on the screen a black girl around your age and up. He thinks to you, so why not? You mean like the casting director? Yes, or the, the producer, yes, casting director. Yeah, absolutely. But some casting director are more um, out of the box, and uh, he gave me uh, some. Uh, but like uh, in um, Game of Thrones, it will all be over soon, princess. Melisandre, the red uh, witch. You voice the red witch of the Game of Thrones. Yeah, Caris Van Houten. Here is now, my lord. For you, we offer up this girl. Entends-nous, oh Seigneur. Nous te donnons en offrande cet enfant. 
Puisses-tu la purifier par ton feu Que ta lumière à jamais guide nos pas It's a question of energy It's not a question of skin Seigneur de la lumière, montre-nous le chemin Carrie Vernouton I met her uh, It was in a kind of convention in Marseille She was on stage And uh, at the end of the interview The journalist who wanted, I met her, he said, somebody coming here to meet you. And uh, she she saw me. And uh, the guy told her that I, I was a French voice. And she looked at me with so, uh, so big blue eye. <laughs> And she asked me um, to tell a phrase, le dieu du feu, quelque chose comme ça. And she's laughing. She went, wow. <laughs> she was so surprised to see me, a black woman, to be a French voice. <laughs> people in the public was mad. <laughs> you know, because French people like a lot of French voice. Yeah, because I guess one of the things you do is you go and say, okay, I really love this show. Okay, who's the French voice of my favorite character? And, and yeah, they get to know yeah, you. Yeah. Mm. Do you, do you get fan mail because of that? Not so often. But seven or eight years ago, I'm looking for an information about um, dubbing I, I did. And I, I see uh, on Wikipedia, my voice uh, CV, uh, curriculum. And I didn't uh, do that. It was fun. Each things I did since 25 years was on the Wikipedia page. It was incredible. I was, oh la la, j'étais, <laughs> who did that? <laughs> How is the work now? I know a lot of the culture sector is really struggling. You know, obviously I imagine your work as an actor on stage is kind of halted, but um, the dubbing work, it continues? Yes, there is uh, less work since November because during the first shutdown, il uh, a pas eu de, de tournage. Nothing was being filmed. Yeah, so we uh, we feel that in November and December, the work come back only now, and there is uh, always uh, work. I I work every day in dubbing. There is a lot of work. Well, that's it for the show this week. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. Please get in touch. You can send questions or comments to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It does help to increase exposure of the show to others. We also post extra material, photos and videos on Instagram. It's Spotlight on France. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. And we'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, February the 4th. Until then, you can find previous episodes of Spotlight on Friends at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye.